Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short, only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is Keith Hackett, regarded by FIFA as one of the top 100 all-time referees. The Sheffield-born man in black enjoyed a rapid rise through the officiating ranks in the early 70s and by the mid-70s, aged just 32, was refereeing in the old first division of the Football League. At just 36, unusually young for the time, Keith refereed one of the all-time great FA Cup finals, the 81 epic between Tottenham and Manchester City, the 100th FA Cup final at a time when it cannot be overstated just how massive that competition was. 11 years later, via many more huge games, Keith was still refereeing for the first couple of Premier League seasons before retiring in the mid-90s. Never mind the fact that his long career brought him into contact with many of the big names in football. As you'll hear, his European games brought him into contact with some major historical figures of the late 20th century. Hope you enjoy it. You're 16 years old when you decide you're going to be a referee. How did that come about? Well, I played for a local team in Sheffield and I was captain of the team and the county FA decided that they would try to improve, if you like, relations between players and referees by having one representative from each team to take a test on the laws of the game, attend a course, which I did, six evenings uh, over a six-week period, two great course tutors, and then at the end of it, I was rather surprised because I said, right, we're going to examine you. And after the examination, we will be able to test you immediately and tell you whether you're going to be a, a registered referee. I was a little bit shocked because I had no thoughts of becoming a referee. I was more interested in doing what the club wanted, and that is for someone within the club to have a knowledge of the laws. I took the test, passed, and I thought that was the end of it. And then a couple of weeks later, we hadn't got a game. And I got a phone call from the county FA secretary, a guy called Ernest Kangley, who literally, I, I said, uh, good morning. And he went, ah, Mr. Hackett, 
you're selected to referee Hillsborough Boys Club versus Sheffield United Juniors and put the phone down. And that was it. I'm bewildered. I hadn't got a clue where the teams played. Uh, and then the next thing was I got a letter, a postcard, in fact, from Hillsborough Boys Club saying, this is the game. It's going to take place at intake junior school, kickoff three o'clock. And I was just bemused. I didn't, I didn't want to let him down. We hadn't got a game. So I then had to borrow kit. I mean, there was a local referee who I knew, a guy called Bill Sher, believe it or not. And uh, my dad knew him, drunk in the same pub. And so I borrowed his kit. Um, I went and purchased the whistle and uh, stepped onto that field at uh, Intake School, which is still there. You can't imagine the field because it slopes both ways. Goalpost to goalpost, touchline to touchline. So it's not the easiest surface on which to play. And uh, almost in bewilderment, really, I, I sort of went to the middle, did the, the coin toss and uh, blew the whistle. Remember to start my stopwatch that I'd been out on board. It was an Ingersoll watch. It was one of those watches that most referees had at the time. It was a pocket watch where the hour was on the on the clock, but it was in minutes. So you got one to 45 minutes, and the area was covered green. Right. It was a stopwatch for referees, and press the button, put it in my pocket, and away I went. It doesn't sound like it was a case of you catching the bug immediately, more that you fell into it and you carried on falling into it, and at some point then you thought, I think this is for me. Well, I think that at the end of the game, when I blew the final whistle, I knew I'd been more involved in the game than when I played and I had enjoyed it and then I was changing in a schoolroom and there was a knocking on the door and this guy came in and said oh my name's Les Swallow I'm, I'm the secretary of Sheffield United junior football team I want to compliment you on your performance it's good for us to have an experienced referee here on a Saturday I've gone like this is my first game <laughs> and uh, he was very complimentary he suggested I join the Sheffield Referees Association. I still have no intention of refereeing. And then the appointments started coming. And, you know, I started taking those games and really got into it, really started enjoying my participation. It became almost like a bug. And it remains to some degree that today because you can't believe the personal enjoyment that you get and the satisfaction that you get despite all these calls of abuse. I would go around, I'd, you know, there weren't always junior teams who were players much older than me, pub teams. And on a Sunday morning, they'd fall out of the pub late Sunday morning at probably three o'clock, have a bacon butty or whatever, and find themselves on a football field ready to uh, participate in the game at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, somewhere in Sheffield. These games were challenging, certainly in the Sheffield and District Sunday League, a league that I, I really became to enjoy. The games were challenging because some of the players played on a Saturday and were semi-professional. And for Sunday, they were earning a bit of pin money, you know, maybe a couple of pints of beer free when they got back to the pub and all those sort of things. I certainly learned my craft. I knew, I knew that uh, I had to manage players of different sort of approaches. Some were tough, wanted to be seen to be tough, didn't have any respect. Uh, and occasionally you'd have to stop the game and say, look, guys, and the only one that's getting paid today. And I think we can all enjoy it more if you give me some space and I'll give you some space as well. And I'm not in your face. 
that approach, was it something that came from you that gradually evolved or were you seeking advice from older, more experienced referees by then to to help you get to the next level? I did become a member of the Sheffield Referees Association and I can remember going to my very first meeting the speaker, the Grand Hotel in Sheffield, is no longer there. And the speaker was Ken Aston. We'll come to uh, Ken Aston later, as, uh, as he's a huge figure in the history of refereeing. He came in and I sat there and then there were people coming up and saying, how long have you been refereeing? And introducing themselves, I'm George McKay. And I, I, I didn't know who George McKay was. I mean, I later knew that he was a FIFA international referee because I, I saw him a few weeks later on television. I couldn't believe it in what was then a match of the day, and they played about 10 minutes of a game, there he was. And I'm going, I know that guy. I had a guy called Brian Baker, who was a football league linesman. So what we had was a camaraderie where you'd go once a month, have a cup of tea or a beer, sit down, maybe listen to a speaker for an hour, but then you're able to communicate with other referees and say, look, I had this particular problem. How do you think I need to shape with that? Or, you know, you ran them a line and you say, oh, you you know, what you needed to do is this and your signalling needs to be a little bit more clearer. I think there was an honesty because at the end of the day, one of the things that is so important in refereeing is having a pair of ears and listening to what other people have to say and always taking advice. That might be a manager or, you know, in those informative years in local parks, they were volunteers. They took the kit. They washed it. They collected the subs. They found the ground to play, you know, and, and those people would come up and have a chat and say, look, I thought you were a bit officious on that one. Just give the player a bit of space and not overreact. Or I think you really got hold of this player and gripped him well. Well done. So all those things were building confidence, but also building experience. Until I then got onto the Yorkshire League, you know, some of the grounds were pretty nice. Uh, they had stands and spectators. That in itself was the build-up of an experience. How difficult was it to adjust to refereeing in front of spectators? What you learn and have to learn very quickly is to switch off. I can talk about refereeing in front of 100,000, but if you're refereeing in, in the park with one man and a dog and he's shouting abuse or having a go at you, it's really, really debilitating in terms of concentration. If, you know, if you're a crowd, it's everybody. But if it's, uh, and, you, and in fairness, you've received that experience, that one man and his dog having a go at you, you suddenly say, hey, just a minute, I'm getting paid for a friend. I can remember almost wanting to argue with someone, just really looking daggers at somebody that had a go. And the captain of the team saying, Keith, ignore him. He does that every week. He's trying to upset you. And, and you learn then that you're not in it on your own. Players... If you win the respect, uh, they will help you. And, and over what was a 12-year period in local football, I would be out Wednesday. In fact, on a Wednesday, I'd referee a, a load of five-a-side football matches. I did uh, five-a-side games at the YMCA, and it was all the car dealers in Sheffield that used to play tournament every week. And, you know, it was quite interesting because you'd sit there getting changed in the dressing room, and somebody would come up and say, look, I've got an Audi and I can't get rid of it. Can I push it across to your patch and you have a go at selling it? Or you might get a guy who, in fact, became the president of Sheffield FC, Keith. He seemed to deal in Rolls Royces. I can remember coming, because I didn't have a car. You know, I used to travel by public transports. And I can remember coming out of the YMCA looking at this gleaming Rolls Royce 
and Keith came out and said, uh, can I give you a lift? And I went, he was driving, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. And it's a different set of experiences. And, and let me tell you, that I drove past a place called Dial House Club, which was a working men's club the other day, and it's now a housing. They've built houses on the club, but behind the club was a, a football ground. It was one of the few flat pitches in Sheffield. And I can remember refereeing there, and I can remember arriving one Sunday morning, and it was a blanket of snow. And, like, the secretary of the club was really disappointed the game wasn't going to take place. And I said, look, I'm equally as disappointed. Can we do something about it? And all 22 players, Bowman away, and myself, the secretary, and another a few volunteers from the club, were all, like, scraping the lines out. And so the lines were created, and... You know, it's on the basis, if you are, look, guys, I'm going to referee this match. The lines are going to get obliterated. I'll make the decisions and trust me. And they did. So by the time you're moving into league football in the early 70s, you're an experienced referee at the level you've been at. You're ready to move up the football league pyramid and you progress to the top division very quickly. Was that rise unusual for the time? I think it might have been. I mean, uh, before... uh, I leave the junior bit. I had the fortune to be on the Northern Premier League, which was Macclesfield. It was Wigan Athletic, Altrincham, Boston United. And these guys were paid money. And the attitude changed dramatically. They hadn't got a clue who you were. You built a reputation up in Sheffield. But now I'm going over the hill into Lancashire. And you're the Yorkshireman coming into Lancashire. What are you doing here on our patch? It's amazing the difference that those players would put in by way of challenges in order to win a few extra bob on top of their living wage that they earned that week because they were semi-pros. And I learned a lot there. Onto the Football League, first as a linesman. And this is how referees progress. Line, referee. Next tier up, line, referee. Took me two years, I think, of being on the Football League and I refereed a cup game at Southport. The game went quite well. And the secretary came in and said, Mr Hackett, when you leave your dressing room, there's someone who wants to speak to in the car park after the match. And I thought, have I done something wrong? <laughs> I can remember walking across the car park and there's this guy with smoke puddling from his sort of head. <laughs> and he introduced himself. He was quite brusque. He said, my name's Hardacre. I'm secretary of the Football League. Well, everybody knew Alan Hardacre then. I said, oh, hello, Mr Hardacre. I think you've done very well think we'll see you on our league in the middle very soon and then a few months later I got a letter caught the train to London Great Eastern Hotel I'd spoke to other referees who said oh you need to know this about the laws of the game what you do if the match is abandoned and what spectators do and your availability and you're always going to travel by train rather than car and I walked into the room at the Eastern Hotel and there in front of me was Bob Lord who was then the chairman of the league, chairman of Burnley Football Club, and he went, uh, Lord, have a seat, Mr Hackett, and I'm now in fear, sort of waiting for the questions to be asked, and all of a sudden he comes across and says, my colleague here, Mr Hardacre, thinks you're a good referee, so if he thinks you're a good referee, that's good enough for me. Thank you, Mr Hackett, you'll be getting a letter from us in a few weeks' time. That was it. I travelled all the way. Just for that? Just for that. And so I got onto the Football League. And you're right. You know, the first game, Stockport County against Northampton Town. Was that Division 4? Yeah, Division 4. Uh, walked out onto the pitch. 
I suppose the biggest distraction wasn't a crowd of maybe, I don't know, three, four thousand. It was the aeroplanes going over the flight path because you're on the flight path to Manchester. Right. And occasionally the 747s seemed to be a bit lower than normal. And I just did distracted. I came off that pitch at half time and it's funny because there was a policeman sat at the front of the stand and he just followed me and I thought, oh. and he just went, uh, Mr. Ackett, it's going really well. I understand this is your first game. And it, people do have that perception that because it's your first game on the Football League, it's the first game you've ever refereed. And of course, the experiences that we build up prepare us for the for those particular games. It's an era of refereeing when you could appear in every division. I'm reading a book at the moment on Brian Clough's time as Brighton manager during their early 70s Division 3 days. And Clough's first game sees Brighton. I think they're at home to York. And I'm reading this particular passage and it mentions Clive Thomas was refereeing. And I was thinking, hang on, Clive Thomas refereeing in Division 3 in 1973 and five years later he's refereeing at the World Cup. Really? But that's how it used to be back then, wasn't it? You could be refereeing a game in any division. Absolutely. You you got a booklet that gave you fixtures. You might get three. You'd be lucky if you get three, normally two a month. And you, you could be in four divisions. And so I could be refereeing at Peterborough United or Lincoln. I used to love going to Lincoln. Uh, City, Grimsby. What was it about Lincoln City that you like going there? I think it's a short drive. It's a lovely city to go to. You know, it's nice. So you can walk around. The ground is pretty tight. It's it's in a housing estate, or was then. I'm sure it still is. Friendly people. The guys would welcome you. And you'd go and have a cup of tea. And they'd come in and say, everything okay. And it was just the, the, the warmth of, of the people. And, you know, you come out afterwards and say, well done, Keith. Spectators are waiting for, to get the signatures of, of the players. They, they'd acknowledge you. And in, in that terms, you know, brilliant. And in Grimsby, I can remember going to Grimsby once, uh, getting a call in late Friday evening saying, look, Mr. Hackett, very sorry, you've got to come across. We've got to do an early inspection. Grimsby are playing Crystal Palace. And they're here in, in staying in a hotel in Cleethorpe somewhere. And we needed to do an early morning inspection. So I drove across, stayed in a hotel. I, I can remember it was called the Lifeboat Hotel. The weather was a little bit that way. I drove early. I thought I'd go seven-ish, seven o'clock to the ground and wait. But in fact, the door was opening. I pushed the door open. At the back of the ground, opposite the main stand, walked in. And this guy shouted at me, hey, what are you doing? come to have a look at the pitch. And he was a groundsman, you know, and I got to know him very well. He walked around. I've said, well, this is dead simple, isn't it? It's off. And he looked at me and went, no, 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 no. I can get this fit for you. I said, well, I'll, I'll hang around till 11 o'clock. So I waited till 11. The managers that both teams came, I can't remember who they were, they arrived, they had a look, and they looked as though I'd come off the planet. They looked at me. But in fairness... The groundsman got it fit. We kicked off and played. And I remember that because I got a letter from the club, the away team, saying how wonderful that I'd made this fantastic decision. And then the Football League rang me and said, hey, both teams are very complimentary about your performance, but also the fact that you got this game on. In a, in a way, I suppose, when you get praise like that, you suddenly develop, treated professionally, and, and that was always the case. So Grimsby was good. But then I'd already been to Anfield as a linesman 
I'd run the line nearest the cop, loved it. And then to suddenly get a game, Liverpool versus Wolverhampton Wanderers, and you've got a referee, you know, and you arrive. And then I can remember this guy saying, oh, you, you take your coffee and tea in the players' lounge. But in fact, before that, let's go upstairs and I'll show you these trophies we've got. And I sat there and the guy took a photograph. I've still got it somewhere in my files of me sitting with the European Cup, the League Championship, and I think the FA Cup. I think it, it was three anywhere. And I went out and refereed the match. But the interesting bit there was I'd given a free kick against Liverpool very early on. And Emily News comes running at me. And he knew that this was my first one in the middle of the league. He knew that. He starts having a real go. And I've gone, I suddenly there's a wake-up call. I've got a job to do here. So I said to him, calm down, calm down. Don't what? Calm down. I said, you need to calm down. I said, no, I'm asking you to calm down. That was a free kick. I've given it. Don't you know who I am? And I've gone, well, I'm, I'm going to find out if you don't shut up. And he goes, right. And I go, right, okay, then fine. What's your name? And there's this blank look on his face. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, what's your name? I know my name. I'm the England captain. I'm captain of Liverpool. And I've gone, no, what's your name? And I've gone, oh, H-E-M-L. Oh, he's gone, it's Emily. E-M-L-Y-N. Use and I went, Emily. I know what your name is, I know you're the England captain, and I'm here to referee this football match. So let's get on now and get on with the game. And I, I distinctly remember that because years after that, well, over the years, I refereed Liverpool a lot, he was the captain a lot, and the respect was always terrific. You build respect, you know, you, you have to earn it, but you earn it through communication. I suppose at the end of the day, you earn it through getting the decisions right, which is the important bit. Was it difficult to one week find yourself refereeing at Highbury or Old Trafford and the following week you're refereeing a game in the lower divisions? Were you able to keep yourself motivated for the smaller games? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because when you say a third division the following week, the truth is that on a Saturday, I've refereed Liverpool against Wolves. And on Sunday morning, I'm going to referee the Blackpool Taverners against the angel. So you're still... I'm still refereeing at grassroots football. And I did that throughout my career. Not not for any ego. It was easier to train to go out and do a football match. You know, you've got a Concord Park. There's 26 pitches in Concord Park in Sheffield. And they were always full. You know, you'd sit there in the dressing room with your kit on. And they'd say, what game did you have last week? And I'd go, well, actually, Wednesday night, I had West Germany against Italy. And they'd look at you as though, like, wow. But they knew it. Local referees knew because I'd developed my craft because of unselfish people who were prepared to give me the knowledge and pass on their experiences, give me all these shortcuts, I felt morally obliged to do the same. And that's exactly what I did. I used to go to the referees' meetings, listen to colleagues, some who I considered to be better referees, but didn't have the desire or couldn't get time off work and all those sort of classic things that impeded their progress to the very top level. That is something that comes across later in your career. You travel vast distances, sometimes to the detriment of your day job. What's clear is that you prefer to referee rather than train, so you'll referee in several games a week throughout your career. Did that approach always work for you? It worked, but I also knew that at times you you had to do some distance work. So what I would do is there's a local football field close to where I live now. And uh, I used to go there very early in the morning, seven o'clock, and run around that football field. Because then 
refereeing was about endurance. You know, the, the whole aspect of our movement was, can we last 90 minutes? Can we last 90 minutes plus? And my time, the whole game changed. They changed the pass back to the goalkeeper. And that suddenly speeding the game up dramatically. And all of a sudden, you were moving away from being just an endurance. You had to then have dynamic sprints, all the things that I introduced into refereeing to make us better referees. That's something I hadn't appreciated, actually. And we'll come to it towards the end of this interview when you referee in the early years of the Premier League. And that's the impact the game speeding up post-92 had on referees and their training because you had to adapt to that. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we, you know, I used to walk a lot and run a lot and referee a lot. And the fact is that I was fit. You took an annual fitness test and I, I breezed through that every time. I never, never sort of got anywhere near not passing it. Personal pride. And then I lived on uh, an estate where we were on hills. I mean, Sheffield is, is often referred to as the city with seven hills. And of course, we have a fantastic football heritage. Yeah. You know, the oldest yeah. football team in the world. We still have the oldest ground in Hallam Football Club. So there's a great deal of history. And, and part of the hills were being able to use those hills for training. So there was a path close to my house that went almost like at 45 degrees. And I'd get on that and run up and come down and run back up. And so it was endurance uh, rather than if you like, the explosive sprinting that we brought in later. But you had to be fit because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, no matter how skillful a player is, one pass could be devastating to the referee. Within that pass, you can be out of position. And if you're out of position, understand the process of a referee. Now, I just state that the process for a referee is, is what we do naturally, all of us as human beings. But it is to see, it's then to recognise and think and then act. And that's the process of a referee. And when, when you examine errors and when I examine my own errors, the reality is I've not seen what they referred to. When you have that ability to watch almost for the first time yourself on camera or match of the day or whatever, then you pick up things that are new to you and then you adjust accordingly. Because up to that point, what you've got to recognise is that at every football league game, there was an assessor. So you had you had a, a, a former referee assessing your performance. And out of respect, I'm just grabbing in a drawer here. So here, here is an assessment from a game in 1980. Would that be sent to you the same week? That, yes, that would arrive almost by Tuesday, Wednesday. And you can see that, you know, a fair amount of writing. But at that time, the assessor didn't, didn't sign it. They did, we didn't know who the assessor were. Did you ever read through those assessments and think, well, they got that wrong? Or would you learn from whatever errors were pointed out? How useful were those assessments? Initially, you react negatively because everything that, everything that might be seen, it could be near a play or you got this challenge wrong or whatever it is, or the relationship, the communication between your referee and linesman is not good. You see those really negatively are out of balance. So what I do or what I did then was to actually get six of them or four on a table on the desk. And I would sometimes at work and I would highlight the good bits with a green pen and with a yellow pen, highlight the bad bits and then read 
the trends over what six referees think. Six ex-referees. This is what they're saying about your referee. You know, they're saying you're fit, you're fit. Great. Uh, if they see your application of law is good, then you think, fine. I used to get so involved in the game, right? I'd almost forget that I'm the referee because I play advantages. I wanted the game to flow. I had this, this whole thing that, you know, I was a player that had become a referee almost by mistake. And maybe there's a bit of me that said, I'd love to have been a player. Of course, when you walk out the Anfield, you're in front of a superstar. And all of a sudden you think, wow, how, how lucky am I to be on the same pitch as these guys? You know, you run out Anfield and you've got Joe Jordan and McQueen and all these players. And you think, wow, this is brilliant. But in reality, you know you've got to manage a match. And you know that there's a guy in the stand who's there to help you. Everybody talks about assessors saying, oh, they're there, you know, referees, referee to the assessors. I never did that. I just wanted them to see me and to make an honest judgment, a respectful judgment. I wanted to be the very best. I had a face-to-face -face competitor in George Courtney, who I considered the best. And, and I'm, I'm looking at him, headmaster of a school, very articulate, very passionate like me about football, outstanding referee. He, he, he was appointed before me. And, you know, you look and you go, well, these are the things that you use as a benchmark and he becomes a competitor, still remains a friend. I would imagine that having a, a rival, albeit a friendly rival, having a competitor of that calibre elevated you to a higher level of referee. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you, what you've got is you, if you aspire to be somebody, whatever that is, in sport, then you put in that additional effort. And, and so with Courtney... Uh, his quality of decision-making was sound. His communication was better than mine. So I, I learned from it. You know, but I also had other people like Joe Worrell and a friend, sadly, the late Neil Midgley. Neil Midgley was a terrific referee. He was an international referee like myself. Great communicator. Brilliant after-dinner speech. And sometimes he'd pick the phone up and we'd have a chat. You know, they, they, how's things going? Saw you on television. Thought you had a, an ad go, well, I didn't think that went very well. It looked okay for me. And so there was that constant chat that went on where you, you're forming, if you like, uh, relationships from a distance. You know that you don't know all the full background of those individuals. You just admire them for what they do out on the field. I want to touch on something you said a few minutes ago about how a referee can shape a game you're you're effectively conductors, the the orchestra is going to play what it's going to play, but you as the official can determine how that spectacle unfolds. You can help that game flow in a way that makes it more enjoyable for the fans, and that's something you did throughout your career. You strove to make the game as attractive as possible to fans in an era when really football wasn't always easy on the eye. With some of it in those informative years, there's the, one could say there's thuggery in the game that you had to manage. There were players that were really naughty. There were players who didn't want to listen, and but they were the challenge. But you're absolutely right. You are the conductor of the orchestra, and the players are the, the, are the players. If you can keep that tempo going, you know, I was taught very early on, look, if you stand around admiring your decision and you're blowing your whistle constantly, everybody will get bored. And therefore, ideally, what you want to be is low key. But I'm six foot odd then, a pretty big guy. So orchestrating for me was taking risks. 
And I think modern referees don't take as many risks as I used to take because I just wanted the game to flow. I, I was a fan. I mean, I, I just like the beat had to be had to be brilliant. You know, if somebody was delaying the taking of a corner kick, I was into it. And you go, look, it's not the cup final, Keith. Uh, we want the game flowing. And and as a result, the the minor fouls, the minor offences were ignored. I was allowed that freedom to make mistakes, but still play an advantage to keep the game flowing. Would that approach have been possible now that every game is televised, whether live or just highlights? Because you were refereeing in the early era of the Premier League when TV coverage changed dramatically, but you served out most of your career in that time of football highlights and only the occasional live league game. Did that give you a freedom then to referee in the way that you did without every decision being scrutinised? I think I was brought up in an era where there were some outstanding referees, Pat Partridge, Clive Thomas, who you've already mentioned, Bob Matheson, a Bolton referee. I ran the line to Jack Taylor. I can remember flagging it. You know, it was Arsenal, uh, Leeds United versus Arsenal. And I flagged a couple of times for fouls. And he came in at half time and, and said, look, keep calm. Well, it was like almost saying, don't get too involved with the flag. You don't have to prove the point. And, and, I watched those referees. I, w- I watched them, different characters, uh, different ways of refereeing. But you're, you've got this mosaic that you're absorbing. I mean, Clive Thomas was a tough referee, but then he had tough games. He became Clive the Book. And the reason behind that was when there were top games being played, that there was a bit of friction, he was appointed to them. And Pat Partridge, who had this lovely style of, of running, but not only that, a wonderful style of as a northeast guy dealing with players, and he too liked the game to flow. And you know, you haven't got to look far to know that the northeast, for whatever reason, has always produced top-class referees. Do you have a theory as to why that might be the case? I think a lot of them come out of the northern league, and the northern league, you know, was pretty strict. I think local football was pretty tough. They managed those games. I just think of Kevin Howley, who I met, who was you know, the youngest referee of the cup final at that stage that I met him, Newcastle, Pat Partridge I mentioned, Peter Willis, who, who was an outstanding referee, George Courtney. Uh, I can drop down a little bit into Middlesbrough with, with Jeff Winter. So it's, it's had that constant flow of being able to produce uh, referees who are good communicators, quite fit and powerful in terms of management. I'd like to think that I had a bit of each one of those. There was a north-south divvying up when it came to refereeing games for much of your career. As a northern-based official, you'd get the northern games. Your southern-based counterparts got the southern games. I thought I benefited that because obviously trips to Newcastle and Middlesbrough, Carlisle, Hartlepool, Darlington, York were regular runs and then into the northwest, Rochdale, Bury. I once went to Bury. I can't understand why we let that club go, but... but you know, that was a, another friendly club. I can remember going there, arriving early. I used to have this habit, a little bit like Dickie Verda, arriving very early for games to prepare. And uh, the groundsman came in and said, have you had anything to eat? And I go, no, I'm okay, thanks. I used to have a beef sandwich on the way to the ground. Anyhow, the uh, guy came in and got this red hot pie. The steam was coming out the middle of it. Here you are, ref. And I go, can't eat that before the game. He goes, it's for you anyway. And I'm going, he said, listen, I'll put it down here. He said, I'd suggest you have it to eat before the game. 
And I go, no, I'm not going to eat a pie. I'm not going to eat pie at all. Listen, I'll leave it here because it's one less for the spectators to throw at you. Coming up. And I went and had an eight-week sabbatical unpaid. Got small fees for doing the job in America. Went across America and Canada. Fort Lauderdale. I can remember running out first game was uh, Tampa Bay rallies against Fort Lauderdale and uh, recognised some of the players, you know, that, that played in the English game. Was driven out into the middle of the pitch, which was unusual. Get out, <laughs> get out of the car and the announcer shouts, tonight's referee, all the way from England, here's the key, thank it. You were refereeing at a time when, as you said, there were many naughty players around. During much of this period in English football, there were no red and yellow cards. In fact, they were only rolled out in 1976. They'd been piloted at Mexico 70. Let me just give our listeners some background to that. Ken Aston, who we mentioned earlier, he's the guy that is behind the creation of the cards. He'd refereed Chile, Italy, the infamous Battle of Santiago at Chile 62. He's then involved indirectly in the England-Argentina quarterfinal four years later when he's head of referees at the 66 World Cup. He's mulling over the sending off in that game the following day while he's stuck in his car at the lights. When he realises at that moment the effectiveness of colour signals as a way of cautioning players and wonders whether that might work in football. The cards eventually make it into English football a full decade later, originally for just four or five seasons. How did the advent of cards change your refereeing? In a way, it, it didn't change my style of refereeing because I was built up being able to communicate. So the process was, whoever the player is, what's your name? I'm cautioning you, and you'd write it in a notebook. And that actually, when you look at it, slowed the thing down. You, you had contact with a person that you, were, you, that you were going to sanction. And that also gave you a tolerance of being able to say after the chat, you know, fine. I'm not cautioning you because I've, I've not produced my notebook. I've actually gone in and said, look, you know, I want an improvement. There's not an immediate reaction. I think that when the yellow cards came in, all of a sudden focus came on the yellow card and the caution, whereas before there was less of it. We didn't know how many players were being cautioned. I mean, I can remember speaking many years ago to a player, Cesc uh, Cole, he's no longer with us, but we had this discussion at Bramall Lane and, and Cesc said, uh, yeah, I think I was cautioned once or twice. And I went, oh, what games were those? And he goes, well, I'm sure I was cautioned because the referee came up and said, look, uh, can you sort yourself out? And I go, did he actually take your name? No. So you suddenly, all of it becomes very public. Sometimes now, they're like, buses, they, they come in threes and twos and ones. And I suddenly think, just a minute, I know you've got to give a yellow card for that challenge because it's reckless. I understand that. But please get some management into it. Slow the, the game down. Put your foot on the ball. Manage the player. Allow him to cool down. Give him some space. You know, but sometimes now referees hold up the card and the media's guessing which one's the caution. They've got to look back at their replay to be able to look at who's, who's been cautioned. So for me, I understand why they have red and yellow cards. 
I think if I had anything to do with it, I would withdraw them. I would take them away. I think the only positive that I can see of a yellow card is if the player thinks he's going to get red and I produce it quickly. He stops there. But now I think we just see them given like confetti. They, they're not a deterrent anymore. Because, you know, you take the top level of the game, they get five yellow cards before they're suspended. In Europe, and some competitions in the world, it's two. Right. For me, there's a watching down in, in that scenario. By 1980, the Football League has come to believe the cards are perhaps triggering some of the violence on the terraces, so the cards are done away with for six or seven seasons, I think returning for 87, 88. I think we were one of only a few countries, if not the only one, to do that. It's a curious thing. Do you recall what it was like to referee again without the cards and also for such a long period? Yeah, um, you know... When you said that, I was rather shocked because I didn't change. So it's it's rather surprising to know that we did drop them for that length of period because I didn't change. I always had the yellow card in the right-hand pocket and uh, I always had the red card in my top pocket in the shirt, which had Velcro or a button initially because I really wanted some thinking time. I needed time to think. Am I going to give this red? And if I'm, if it's red, it's got to be red, and I've got to be 100% correct. I'm, I'm really interested in that because I can't recall the impact of that. Or what I can recall is sometimes the impact on certain law changes and how that influenced how you had to deal with certain situations. In this television age of football, those cards almost feel like they were created for TV. They're very dramatic and I'm certain with us for good. They'll never do away with them. I think that they're very much about communication and I think what they have to do is the authorities is to try to put some value into them because, you know, I mean, in fairness, England is one of the better countries. Uh, you know, we, we probably average around about three yellow cards a game. We were probably in Europe, although everybody respected and loved having English referees, we were known to be more tolerant. I think we had that reputation. So we weren't card happy in, the, in that right sense. So we move into a period in the late 70s where over the course of three seasons, you're involved with three very big FA Cup games at a time when here in England, the FA Cup was a bigger event than the European Cup Champions League final. You could argue the FA Cup back then was a bigger event than the Champions League final is in this country nowadays, unless there's an English club involved. I agree. 1979, you're running the line for the Arsenal United final, an instant classic. We spoke before the interview and uh, you were honest about what you saw as your limitations as a linesman. And you told me that there's a clip of you from that final where you can be seen dropping the flag. Yeah. I mean, the 79 Cup final was shown a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and I, I had a number of uh, emails from colleagues saying you're a better referee than you were a linesman, and <laughs> I, I think you're probably right. 79 was a big year for me because, as a lad, I, I was a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and uh, my dad is steel's workers. There was a steel worker. We lived in a terrace house. Football was an escapism for all of us, really, and we used to walk from my house to the ground, probably about three miles. Stop at the pub on the way, my dad. He'd have a few pints. I'd have a bottle of orange juice. And we'd go to the ground and, you know, big crowds. 
Hillsborough's always had good crowds, and uh, you get to the back of the cop, didn't have a cover then, and you'd abseil down the uh, the top of the fans. As a youngster, I'm getting shunted to the front so I could see the game. And so when I was appointed to the semi-final of the FA Cup between Arsenal and Liverpool at Hillsborough, that's the first game in 79-80, an epic four-game tussle. Yeah, I had the first two. But I, I parked the car where I used to live. There was no houses then. They raised them to the ground. Terrace houses had gone. And uh, walked to the stadium and uh, refereed the football match. And just, you know, running down the tunnel and then suddenly being in the middle of Hillsborough in front of a full audience, you know, looking and thinking, well, did I ever think as a youngster looking over the wall, watching my hero, Derek Dooley, the number nine who sadly lost his leg at Preston in the game. You know, you suddenly go, wow. So it was a, it was a, a big experience for me in that sense. And then to get the cup final, uh, Man United, Arsenal was uh, equally, uh, you know, you, you didn't expect. And when the phone call came, the same got the match, just, just quite amazing. And it was a great experience. And the referee, the late Ron Chalice, and Ron was also a referee that liked the game to flow. Was a, was a cracking referee. It was past the five-minute final, and that's what it was. All the goals came at the end. I thought it was going to a replay. I was going to have a second game, but it didn't. A game that does go to a replay is a final that you'll be forever associated with, the 81 FA Cup final, the 100th final. You're still only 36 when you take charge of that. It's gone down as one of the great finals, deservedly so. Your recollections of those two games? For any football fan, any player, you know, the ambition of wanting to participate in a game at Wembley is something very special. And I can remember travelling down on the Friday with my wife because we were allowed to go to the game. We attended the EVA final rally, an event that's an annual event run by the London Society of Referees. Saturday morning, getting up, White's Hotel on Bayswater Road, going for a walk in the park, coming back, being chauffeur-driven to Wembley. So all that was part of the building. Walking on the pitch, being interviewed by Pete Murray, some people might remember him, radio, BBC radio, and meeting Margaret Thatcher and her husband and having a chat. Dennis Thatcher was being a rugby union referee, so we had that exchange. And... uh, which is almost surreal when you look back. But football's done that throughout my career. The thing I remember about the first game was Ricky Villa. You know, you've got to understand that overseas players into our game were rare. And here was the team that got two, Villa and, and Ardiles. And uh, he was substituted in that first game. Didn't play particularly well. And I can remember thinking as he's walking off pretty dejectedly and then walks around the perimeter, I'm thinking... That's, that's a real walk of shame. And, and it was quite effective because you're part of an occasion and you want everybody to enjoy that occasion. Of course, the game went to 1-1, finished the game, everybody's pretty happy with the, with the 1-1 draw. And then I've got to walk up the steps to be introduced to the Queen Mother. And I'm thinking, I wonder if this is the first replay, by the way, I went when I picked up I'd already... Walked up the steps, and, and as I got to the top of the steps, I'm thinking, if she gives me the medal, and I've got to tell you, jumping in, that before the game starts, Reg Payne, who was then the referee's officer, a really nice guy, came in and said, well, here's an important choice you've got to make. You've got a choice for a match fee, £35, or a medal. You can't have both. 
So as I walked across towards the Queen Mother, I'm thinking, if she gives me the medal, I'm not going to get the replay. And she just, like, acknowledged, walked past, no medal, started smiling, walked down the steps, and the guy said to me, you know, don't you, because you've not got the medal, you're going to be doing the replay. Given there was no precedent then for a Wembley replay, at that stage, you didn't know whether if the final went to a replay, it automatically meant you'd be refereeing that. No, and remember my experience with the uh, with the semi-final, Liverpool-Arsenal, because after the second game, they, they said, look, tradition now is that we you don't have the third replay. And I'm thinking then, who's going to take my place? Of course, it's Pat Partridge. I'm just like, cracky, I mean, Pat Partridge has come for me. He's doing one of my games. Uh, so there was those sort of connotations. But we didn't know. I was told on the pitch you got the replay Thursday. Of course, Thursday comes, less spectators allowed in, 90,000, I think. I'd had a slight Achilles tendon injury. I'd been treated at Rotherham United with their physio all week. So they were very kind as a club. And um, I ran out for the replay. Almost immediately, Jerry Gowes decided for Manchester City that he's going to and so he very quickly gets cautioned. There's a dramatic start to the replay. There are two goals in the opening 10 minutes. Then in the second half with the game at 1-1, you award Manchester City the first penalty in a cup final in almost 20 years. I think that was the first penalty kick awarded in a, a final for a long time. And then we have that final goal, which epitomises football for me because I talk about that you know, dejection of a player going off in the first game, and all of a sudden now he's the hero. Scores a spectacular goal, uh, and I'm right behind it, so I've got the best view in the house. I almost blew for a free kick, didn't, fortunately, put it in the back of the net, goal. That was the kind of goal that we never used to see in the English game at that time, or indeed for a long time after. Uh, Yeah, a long time after, and I think that's why it sticks in people's memories. You know, we see some wonderful goals now, don't we? I mean, I'm watching Son and that wonderful goal for Spurs at the weekend. And, and you just look at it and you see the camera work and everything that goes with it. Wow, how, how good to get that shot as a cameraman, as a producer to have that in the game. And how wonderful as a player to have that skill. The one thing I've got is I've, I've got an FA Cup final medal that sits somewhere. And if I wanted to look at it, it brings back memories that aren't of a negative performance of me as a referee. I'm satisfied as a referee that I did my bit in those two games. 81, that's a big year in your career. You make it onto the FIFA list. You also have a brief stint in the North American Soccer League as well. Was that as an advisor? What it was was uh, as a guest referee. Keith Walker, who had been the secretary of Sheffield United, in previous seasons had George Courtney and Keith Styles, I think, refereeing North American Soccer League's about for an eight-week period. And uh, I got the call, would I go? It was mid-season. I asked the boss. The boss said, yeah, fine, you can, you can go. No problem. And I went and had an eight-week sabbatical unpaid. Got small fees for doing the job in America. Went across America and Canada. Fort Lauderdale. I can remember running out. First game was uh, Tampa Bay rallies against Fort Lauderdale and uh, recognized some of the players you know, that that played in the English game, was driven out into the middle of the pitch, which was unusual. (laughs) I get out of the car and the announcer shouts, tonight's referee, all the way from England, Mr. Keith Hackett. I had a number eight on my back who was a guest referee. That's the number of the guest referee. 
a music play during the match, you know? So it was all different. But what I was doing was realizing that the game that I'd known in England was different in America because it was more an event. It was around television. There were time issues. I had to have two one-minute breaks in each half for advertising. And so you'd have a player go down injured and go, right, here's a chance for a minute break. You'd cross your arm, arm, arms and say, stop the clock, uh, because they control the time. I didn't. So they were the timekeepers. You'd say to the player, stay down, we've got a minute break. And if you want to get help, you say, stay down, I need a minute. When you returned to English football after that brief spell in the NASL, was there anything from that experience where you thought, I wouldn't mind seeing that introduced over here? There were two things I like. If we talk offside, they, what they effectively did was took the penalty area line and extended it out to the touchline. And they said within that area is the only area where you can be offside. So 18 yards from the goal line, effectively, you could only be offside in that area. You weren't offside if you were from the halfway line, that, those sort of things. So that, I thought, worked really well. The second one was the penalty shootout. So there was no games that were drawn. And so at the end of the match, you had a penalty shootout. But now comes the thing about penalty, because the penalty shootout, 35 yards from the goal line, you had a line. They brought the clock onto the stadium, right? The countdown clock. The player taking the penalty kick would have the ball on that 35-yard line. And as I blew the whistle, he had so many seconds, can't remember what it was, to have a shot on goal. So if he wanted, he could take the goalkeeper on and round the goalkeeper and put it in. But if the goalkeeper wanted, he could sprint out to the edge of his area and try and stop him there in the chance of having a second goal. And I always thought that was, uh, for the fans, brilliant. And of course, the other thing was uh, not controlling the time. You had the countdown of 10, 9, 8 at the end of the game. So it's a bit more jazzy. In 83-84, you take charge of uh, an extraordinary European Cup Winners' Cup game in Poland between Gdansk and Juventus. Juventus had won the first leg 7-0 in Turin. The second leg, though, that was much closer. And also, it isn't remembered so much for the football, more for the extraordinary events around it. You stepped in to take charge of that second leg. Tell us how that came about and the whole experience of that game. Well, I think initially John Hunting, the Leicester FIFA referee, was scheduled to referee this game. And then I got a call to say, you know, was I available to do the match? And I always said yes. Then... In a build-up, it was whether I was going to be allowed into the country, whether an English guy was going to be allowed into Poland. And so I sat there and eventually got a call from UEFA saying, look, you will be going, otherwise the game will not go ahead. You will be going. We told them very clearly. So I flew into Warsaw, thinking, oh, the flight to Gdansk is going to be later. And then the guy said, oh, you know, suddenly started checking me in. I've gone, just a minute. I have to be in the city of the game. And they go, no, 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 Warsaw, it's safer. And they go, listen, these are the regulations. Eventually, I had to contact UEFA to inform the Polish FA, look, this is the case. They've got to be in Gdansk. I can remember walking out the airport and seeing one or two jets and then walking around this corner of a building and looking in front of me was this antique. And I was thinking, never going in that. And we did. We flew in this 
really old aircraft. I've never seen anything like it. And we flew at 3,000 feet all the way. So I asked the guy, I said, look, because of the turbulence, I'm saying, can you not go higher? And he goes, no, no, no. And then the Polish guy, the interpreter, informed me that it was, in fact, a visual flight. There was no logistics on it, so it was purely visual. So we were quite low level. I got to Gdansk. We arrived at the airport. There were Russian soldiers camped out. You know, so as far as we were concerned, when we read the news or the news was broadcast, there was a threat of Russia getting involved in Poland. But there they were. And so uh, we were taken uh, in a chauffeur-driven car to the hotel. And the hotel was near the shipyard gates. We were put in the, about the 12th floor of a empty hotel with no occupants other than us. And we were told that they were bringing a chef. And, and so we didn't go out into Gdansk. I could see the shipyard gate, could see water cannons. It was quite an eerie situation. And then, as was standard procedure, at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's a meeting at the stadium. You're driven there. You select the colours. The colours are, if you like, are brought in front of you. You look at the colours of the sheet. You walk around the pitch. talk about security. There's a match delegate, the representative from UEFA. And then we get back in the car. And the guy from Poland, I think, said, look, we're going to stop him on the way. Wanted to meet someone and uh, stop in this building. We met Father uh, Popiescu. He was later murdered. And uh, I was introduced to Letting Valencia. We exchanged words. He wanted us to know that the food packages coming from England were getting to the right people. And could I encourage those to continue when I got back? I asked if he was coming to the game and he went like, you know, shake no. You know, I'm the only English guy in. There's no, no media. And of course, uh, Juve, when I arrived, uh, their aeroplane, it was the first aeroplane I'd ever seen with Juventus written on the side. And that was at the airport. Uh, and of course, you have no contact with the clubs other than the morning inspection of the kit at the stadium. And it's just somebody brings a shirt and somebody brings boots and all that. Before the match, Juve are very unhappy about security arrangements. On the pitch side of the, of the fence, they got dogs with a dog handler barking like crazy and Juve didn't like that. Juve of course had got people like Paolo Rossi, Platini and of course Boniek. And Boniek as, as a Pole was making his first appearance back in Poland. He was a huge star, an even bigger star now he's playing for the great Juventus. I did ask Valencia the day before, was he coming to the game? And I just got that that nod and then the game was being televised and then at some point in the game the ball went into the crowd, and I stood there, it wasn't coming back. And then all of a sudden, the crowd parted, and there was Valencia. I mean, I recognised it because I had seen the day before, and his moustache. They all started shouting solidarity, at which point then there was pause in the game. And I was informed afterwards at the end of the match that that was the point at which broadcasting had stopped. OK, so that's because it had gone on for a few minutes. There were, there, there were clearly some home team players that were in the know on what was, what was taking place. That same season, you've got a, another journey behind the Iron Curtain, Bucharest versus Minsk. The Ceausescu regime is still five and a half years away from falling. It strikes me that as brilliant as the Champions League is these days, and there's no denying it is a brilliant spectacle, there is very little mystery attached to it. That mystery has gone Whereas in your time, you were travelling to countries to referee teams of 
you know, we just didn't know very much about these teams, did we? Well, I mean, sometimes you you were the fact is you didn't know, and also, of course, you've got to adapt to the country that you're in because food's different. You know, you're driving in Bucharest, you're driving past, and people are queuing. You say, "What are they queuing for?" Food, you know, bread. You see women digging holes in the road. One of the first Eastern Bloc countries I did was East Germany, then versus uh, Switzerland. You know, I think a World Cup preliminary game, and uh, you know, I had to flying to West Berlin and then get a car, chauffeur and car by the FA to Checkpoint Charlie. You know, I was on my own. There were two international assistant referees, linesmen, joining me. And I can remember with the bag walking across Checkpoint Charlie from west to east. You know, this was like James Bond, really. What he's seen in films. But this is real. You know full well that people who tried to escape have been killed trying to escape from East Germany. And that's the realism. And you can't say that that doesn't impact you as an individual. And I was greeted by a guy who spoke wonderful English. He'd learned it listening to BBC, pointed out the bullet marks on the wall, which you could see. Then he turned and said, look back. And I brought a camera. And I said, well, I was told quite categorically by the FA not to take any cameras anywhere into Eastern Bloc country. And he turned and he just said, amazing, isn't it? A few years ago, the president of the United States made his very famous speech. He couldn't come in this part of the world, yet you as a referee from England can. This football, isn't it? And it's it, quite surreal. You saw then that in, in, in almost the, the dour way in which people live. There were hardworking people. And football was an escapism. And, and Bucharest and Craiova went to uh, the other side and had a game in, in uh, Romania where... At the end of the match, the car that I'm being chauffeur-driven drives straight past the hotel that I'm in. We drive to Romania and then we go into a hotel. We sat down to a banquet and at the top there was Ceausescu in this room. We had Sturgeon as a start in Chateaubriand. And I sat opposite this guy and we were drinking wine. I don't, I'm not a huge drinker of alcohol, but I'm enjoying this red wine. And the guy who hadn't said anything eventually said, you like the wine, Mr. Hack? Well, it's lovely. I really do like it. And he goes, uh, I, it's Romanian. I said, I'm amazed you can't buy Romanian. No, no, it's uh, not for sale. And um, he then asked me if I knew Francis Pim. I thought he was referring to a drink. Then he told me his foreign minister and he handed me his card. And he was at the time the foreign minister of Romania. And uh, then a few weeks later, I get a call to say, there's a parcel waiting for you at the Romanian embassy. It's about. So I rang the FA, said to Reg Payne, Reg, I've got a call from the Romanian embassy off Bayswater Road. There's a package for me. I said, I'm not allowed to take packages. He said, listen, don't offend. Go and get it and bring it to the FA. And I can remember driving, picking up this uh, box, taking it back to the FA. Reg came out the office, opened the package and said, oh, it's wine. Pull the bottle out. And he went, Never had Romanian one. And so those are things. I mean, you know, an experience that really is quite remarkable when you think about it. I can remember going to uh, Prague and uh, being taken into a store, uh, thinking I might want to purchase a souvenir. The only thing that was on show was a Chinese bike, push bike, nothing else. Shells were bare. Great, great experiences. There were more than just a football match when, when you went into Europe. Three days. 
1985 English clubs are banned from Europe following the Heisel tragedy. You're continuing to referee big matches in Europe and around the world over the next few years. Just after Heisel, in fact, you're in Mexico for a triangular tournament, the Azteca 2000, a little dress rehearsal for the following year's World Cup. As an English referee, did you feel any extra pressure at that time? You mentioned Heisel and it brings back a memory because I had Belgium versus Greece, I think, two weeks before Heisel. I think it was a 3-3 draw in a, in a World Cup game, a preliminary game. And uh, I can remember walking around that stadium and actually stating very clearly that the, the state of the stands were very poor. The, the surface area had was broken up, concrete was broken up. And, and I'd push the report in, expressing my concerns about, about that. I think it was two or three weeks later, I worked for a company in Romford, in a uh, garage door manufacturer in Romford, and I used to stay at this hotel near, in Hertfordshire. And I can remember driving by, I'm going to watch the Liverpool play in Heisel in the, in the game. And I arrived in, in a bit of a rush, checked in very quickly at the hotel. I was a regular, so I knew who it was. And then the guy said, big problems at Heisel. And I switched the television on and then watched it on and shocking. Going then to other games around, you know, you go to Azteca, there's 120,000 spectators, whatever the numbers are, they, they're massive. How much of a challenge was it to referee a game at altitude? Although we did the fitness test for the tournament, first tournament of what was effectively the Junior World Cup, it took us into the forest up north and it, it, you couldn't believe that how altitude had that effect. But it, it was acclimatised higher, and then they bring you down into Mexico City, although you stayed in Mexico City. But I can remember doing one game at uh, Mexico in the Triangular Tournament afterwards, and uh, Beckenbauer was the manager of West Germany, and he, he brought the team in, and they, they played almost like two days or one day later, no acclimatisation, and some of those players really suffered because of the altitude. So all those things... Uh, you know, you had to watch what you eat, although Mexicans, you know, stay off the hot food. But effectively, yeah, good trip, nice country. A picture doing the rounds the last few weeks since Diego Maradona's passing is from the August 87 centenary match, the Football League versus the rest of the world at Wembley. There's yourself in the centre circle pictured with the captains, Brian Robson and Maradona. It was just a year on from the Mexico World Cup. There's a, a touch of the uh, the pantomime villain as Maradona takes to the pitch. You can hear a, a, a few boos ringing out. I think they paid him 90 grand to, to play in the match. It was quite a huge amount by all, all accounts. That rest of the world team is an incredible lineup. It's managed, I think, by Terry Venables. There's a who's who of talent from the previous year's Mexico 86 alongside Maradona. You've got Platini. You've got the Saev in goal. You've got Futre, Lineker, Yosimar, and so on. The biggest problem was that they anticipated some players not turning up, but everybody wanted to play. And of course, they arrived and everybody wanted to play. At one stage, I think in the second half, it got a bit stupid, really. It's like it was like traffic junction, people coming on and off. And it, the old balance of the game was lost in that period. Uh, I think a couple of weeks later, I got a note from... Uh, Mr. Blatt is saying that he was unhappy that the English referee in charge of this game had allowed too many substitutes. And, uh, and I wrote back and apologised and said, actually, it was a friendly match. 
where are the regulations in a friendly right. something like that relationship but I make a point. A year later, you're officiating the opening game at Euro 88 between the host nation, West Germany and Italy, two of the pre-tournament favourites. Both teams go on to make the semi-finals. Quite a game to take charge of. The first thing, of course, is that you go to that tournament uh, with two referees. So I had two international referees, Neil Mitchley and Brian Hill, acting as linesmen. And so there's a build-up to the game itself. There were two problems in that match. The first one was that I was informed by German security that there was a potential death threat on Chancellor Kohl, who I was going to be introduced to. So that was one one problem and one concern, the security aspect, and having knowledge of that and how, how to react, all part of pre-match planning of a big game. And I say to referees, even now, that those referees that are refereeing in the Premier League, it's an event, it's not just a game of football. You know, if I'm in the park, the pitch suddenly gets poor and deteriorates. I can blow my whistle and come straight off. You can't do that in the Premier League. You can't do that in the Football League. You've got to get, you've got to get police security and everybody in place. So sometimes you've got to play on for another ten minutes, in a, in a, even though your decision is just going to come to an end. So I think that within within the framework of of that particular game, I can remember uh, saying to the Italian coach, uh, I got a note to say to him, look, I'm very concerned about Walter Zenger carrying the ball, and I needed to remind him that there were limited number of steps that he could take, and that the odd six was over the top, four that he could, that might allow five, but six. There was that conversation at half time. I, I came into the dressing room at half time, and, and my two, Neil Misley was pretty brutal in terms of his comments to Brian Hill because there was a challenge behind my back off the ball that I hadn't seen at all. Neil had. And so the conversation throughout after was more was more centered on Zenger and his hand and his steps. This challenge that I hadn't seen. And and Neil said to me, no uncertain terms, if you'd have seen it, you would have sanctioned. He said, I'm too far away to give any credibility to giving the decision. So we had that today. Italy went ahead 1-0 and of course then we got Wenger doing about 8 or 9 steps and I pull him. So he's looking at me and I've gone I've said it, the captain knew, the, the Italian captain knew that I'd had that conversation he smiled and he wasn't coming and I penalised him and as a result of that, indirect free kick, Germany get equalised Two years later you're back in West Germany again well now the unified Germany and that's for a reunification game, another massive event. Was that a, a club game? It was a UEFA Cup game, and I can remember a fairly long drive when they said we're going to take you to the wall. Uh, it seemed an age, but what stands out for me, you know, I go back to the human element because we're there for three days. So I can remember the guy who looked after us spoke wonderful English and was managing director of a, of a, of a large company, and... Uh, he showed me around his Trabant. Been waiting 14 years to purchase a Trabant. You've got to understand the engine size is about the size of a more on a grass cutter. And it's made of paper mache. But to him, this is an immaculate car. And he's looked around it, and I'm always careful what I say and all that goes with it. Yeah, great, fine. And then, of course, on that unification night, the uh, transporters came in, beer wagons came in first, tankers. Uh, at the back of a tanker, people were filling 
buckets of beer to celebrate. But in addition to that, there were car transporters come in and took the cars off the transporters and parked them on the on the pavement. And all of a sudden, this guy now is close up to, uh, I think he was looking at a Honda. And he sat in the Honda and everything. And in fairness to him, he said, I'm going to buy one. And I said to him, but you're all short of money. <laughs> but there was a, a massive mistake made by the government of uh, Germany because they agreed to give whatever the, I can't remember what the, the coinage or the currency was called, but for every one of the East German currency, Germany was going to give two German marks. It was a bit of a welcome towards evening things up. And of course, what he didn't realize, and this guy, who I, you know, he was a very well-educated guy, and he said to me, there's going to be a massive problem. Because why? He said, because the German government have taken this agreement without knowing that no East German really trusts the bank. So they, they take the value of two for one with what is held in banks. They're in for a rude shot because we all have our money stacked away at home. <laughs> Because they had nothing to spend on, and then of course there was a there was a run on the mark. So Germany did have a, a, a short period, I think, where where their finances were affected quite badly with the with the unification financial. So you pick those things up. Nothing to do with actually the experience of visiting that country at that particular time. So we arrive in the early nineties. You're still only forty eight. The Premier League launches you reach an agreement to referee for another couple of seasons I know that the back pass rule came in at the start of the inaugural season 92-93 and of course that does impact on the game as we said earlier speeding it up but in terms of the overall quality of the football at that time and I'm talking about things like the state of the pitches the stadiums there's a glossy advertising campaign to launch the Premier League. But the football itself, that took a while to change. We saw it really as, from the refereeing point of view, not much different other than as a senior referee being asked to be retained on the list, I would be given more Premier League games, which, which happened. The games themselves didn't really change. Broadcasting brought in more. We started wearing a green kick with black stripes, which was all a bit black smiley. And then we had the football league thinking, like, well, we've got to do something different. we better bring a purple shirt in. You saw, began to see the commercial changes. Why finish? Was it a physical thing or mentally you just felt the time was right? I think I decided I'd got a game, Liverpool-Manchester United. Might have been the other way around, Man United versus Liverpool. I think it was probably some weeks off from the end of the season. And in my own mind, I decided going to go out on a big game. And that's what I did. I sort of finished the game. Uh, my two linesmen were due to be with me in a couple of weeks' time at another game. I said, guys, that's it. And they couldn't believe it. I still got to be employed. I still got to work and all those things. Towards the end of my international career, 1991, the pressures to get time off work became much more difficult. I was a sales director of a company. I'd lost a job. I'd lost a job. I'd been in the company for 17 years. And uh, all of a sudden, because of an international game, that was it. My career was over. And then I, had, I was in this period of then getting another job and another job. And all those things impacted on that decision to say, all right, this is it. I've got to start focusing, not necessarily on a career, but also just a minute, family and everything else. Because up to that point, 
referees have to be very selfish, very sort of centered in terms of their action. Um, and so that was it. I sort of quit. That was it. I'm going to play golf or whatever. And after I'd quit, I can tell you the people weren't happy. <laughs> Let's finish on your involvement with those cult books, Paul Trevelyan's You Are the Ref. There were two other refs involved with it originally, Stan Lover and Clive Thomas, but uh, like an actor taking over the role to become the definitive Doctor Who, you are now the ref most associated with the strips and books, a near 40-year link now with that work. How much time do you put into the composition of each referee and scenario? I mean, what an honour to work with someone like Paul Trevelyan. He's a wonderful artist. The stories he's got are just unbelievable. You know, he worked on the stage with top comedians and he's done books with Peter Hallis, uh, the late Peter Hallis now, and, and Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas, and teaching Oscar the lawyer to draw. Can you imagine the stories when you sat with him? I mean, just remarkable. His knowledge of football is incredible. His knowledge of referees is unbelievable. So I got the call in eight, 1981, in, I think in uh, around 81, 82, and uh, he rang and uh, asked, Stuart was the editor of Shoot Magazine. Would I be interested? And uh, Paul came on and said, look, the one thing I ask is if I send you the questions, I need the answers quickly. And so we got the agreement. Paul would send me the three questions and I'd respond immediately. I'd sit down immediately wherever I was. I'd sit down if I was on the train in London or whatever and answer them. So we were in the Shoot Magazine. Then we had a period off. We did a book. I did my own book with Collins Willow in around 86, I think. And then the Guardian newspaper came along and said, look, we want to do this for our Sunday magazine. And that crept occasionally into the newspaper, but generally in the magazine. And that had good readership, a lot of response. We started doing the books. Paul did one initially on his own, and then I followed through with other books. He would sometimes send you a draft drawing. You know, you, you get the draft drawing and you'd go, incredible. We put a lot of effort into the books in terms of the content and the structure, and but we're never searching for it, you know, because every time we could sit down and do three books. I mean, sometimes we do about two books to get one because Paul's just got massive amount of energy and knowledge. The public used to come in with a question, but and one of them was, what happens if somebody comes on the field like dressed as a monkey? And they were making reference to, if you like, the beginning of, clubs having mascots. So the, the reference was about a monkey coming onto the pitch and interfering with play, and how would you deal with that? And so we give the answer to that question. And then that happened in a game about four weeks later, after the book had been published. The questions, the questions that were sent to you for those books, was there ever a question where you thought, well, no, they've got that wrong? What you find is this. Somebody might buy a book on eBay that's five years old and then come on and say, you've got the answer wrong. You go back and say, yeah, because the law's changed. Yeah. The law's changed yeah. in whenever. What I find now is more people are doing that. More people are beginning to highlight the need for knowledge. And spectators and other stakeholders in the game perhaps need to understand and, and know more, and they find out now because of social media. Keith, you've been very generous with your time. Much appreciated. Real pleasure.
Thank you very much to Keith for his time. We did talk more as there has been no quiet retirement for Keith, really. But I had to observe the show's short shorts cutoff point and things such as his being general manager of the PGMOL, Professional Game Match Official Board, through the noughties in which he was responsible for referees in English football, bringing through many of the biggest English referees of the last 10, 15 years and overseeing the dawn of professional referees and introducing sports science into their rapidly changing training regimes. Those achievements, though notable, of course, fell outside our remit. Keith does remain high profile in the game, regularly airing his views on referees and is passionate in his pushing for improvements with regards to VAR, arguing for better communication between VAR and fans when they return along the lines of the system operated in rugby union. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the show on whichever platform you download it from and share and retweet, repost, etc. All those social media links. Reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical. In fact, all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. I don't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase the show's minuscule visibility in the Apple Podcast Store and help me to keep the show going. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synthpop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. 